Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Lamp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Next Reel. I'm Pete Wright. That there, right over there, is Andy Nelson. Hello. High fidelity, Andy. (laughs) In stereo. (laughs) And uh, you can find us at thenextreel.com, which is where you can read more about this special edition, special edition of The Next Real Show. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, talk about something real, real special. Uh, but in, before we get into that, we want to make sure to remind you to head over to iTunes, subscribe to the show for free. You can just search for it, The Next Real, in iTunes. You'll find it. You subscribe for free. You leave us a nice comment or, because, you know, this being so pretty doesn't come easy. And uh, you can do that. You can join the conversation on any of the various social platforms. You can find Andy uh, on on the Twitter at uh, Soda Creek Film. And you can find me at Pete Wright. We would love to hear from you. And um, I I think what else did I... Oh, yeah. And and don't forget, jump over to flickchart.com slash the next reel to catch up uh, our stack rankings of all the great movies we've talked about and letterboxd.com slash the next reel to see our watch list. I think that's the important stuff. I think so. All right, I think now, you did it. Now we get to talk talk about the, the, the meat. The meat of our show sandwich tonight. Wow. Andy, you uh, have something of an obsession, and that is, this has become now. This is a series because you know last year we did. Who did we do last year? The writer. I, I don't know if it's a series. It has yet. become. A, it's a pair. <laughs> it's a pair. It's a pairing. It's a pairing. Yeah. Once I hit three, then I think it's an. Is it an addiction at three? No. Then it's a trilogy. <laughs> it's a trilogy, and then it's an addiction. <laughs> it's an addiction, and then I need. Then to it's double oh seven. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so it started uh, last year uh, with yeah. the uh, screenwriter Clute, Andy Lewis, who is fantastic. Yeah, uh, and oh, this is so. This is the this is the big follow up. We have this uh, we have this interview. Would you like to tell the people uh, who who we're going to be talking to this evening? Well, I, I if they've been listening to the shows, hopefully they have some sense of an idea. Let's but, pretend uh, they're not and make it a big uh, surprise. Not. <laughs> the big surprise is it's it's Richard Dysart, screen legend, uh, stage legend, TV legend. He's he's everywhere, this man. He's everywhere, this guy. He was everywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, we you tracked him down. I did. You, I... you were the one who tracked him down, and I'm the one who made him sit on the floor. <laughs> Yes, I, I put my people to work to do all the uh, hard work of finding him, and then you you uh, belittle the man and make him. <laughs> you build him up, I break him down. Uh, in all seriousness, this guy has been uh, he has been around a long, long time, and Andy and I had the opportunity to talk to him uh, about 
you know, how he was quite literally part of building uh, cinema, part of building television, making the transition from radio performance to TV. And uh, he has, you know, his his work is, you know, if you don't know him by name, and there is a fair chance that you won't know him by name, you certainly will know him from the parts he played and uh, and the voice he brings to his characters, which we'll talk about in this evening's show. Absolutely. Uh, highlights you want to you want to let people uh, let people know what you're most excited to share. Well, you know, I mean, I, I but way back in our episode about the thing, I think uh, uh, you know we both highlighted how influential that particular horror movie was, and some of the scenes involving Richard Dysart in that film were on us as young children who probably shouldn't have been allowed to watch it. At the time. I am guaranteed we should not have been allowed to watch that show. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I think he's been uh, uh, burned into my brain from uh, from those early days of watching that film, and it's definitely something that I'm looking forward to uh, talking to him about that film, along with uh, being there working with Peter Sellers. You know, there's just uh, so many. Um, gosh, what uh, I L.A. Law? Play, I mean, well, geez. that's the one. Yeah, for me, was L.A. Law. I mean, hundred and what was it, seventy-one some odd episodes of L.A. Law. Every single episode he was in L.A. Law, and um, you know, and uh, you know, yeah, we talked about uh, the hospital a little bit, which is which, um, <laughs> and he has a, a, a funny performance in that uh, film yep. with George C. Scott. Um, so you you will recognize him. I, I will say he's eighty-five years old this year. And he hasn't worked in the industry uh, in many years. And mm-hmm. uh, he was very gracious and very patient. And honest to God, he sat on the floor because the chair <laughs> the chair was too creaky. And so he sat on the floor and uh, and was just an incredibly good sport. Uh, and and I, you can tell, I think, I don't think this is unfair to say, he worked hard to rack his brain for some of these memories. Yeah, we were really uh, making him dig some some stuff up from long ago. We did. We absolutely did. And so we are we are deeply honored to to share with you this conversation with uh, the fantastic Richard Dysart. How did you end up acting? What what is it that uh, that drew you to this uh, this crazy business? Well, <laughs> it came about pretty much by chance. Also, the fact that I realized that somebody has to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So I jumped in and it worked. I started out as a a theater actor in in New York City and I didn't do any television or and then uh, only sporadically what was working uh, in the theater. It's difficult sometimes, you know, schedule wise. I was uh, interested in radio because when I was a child, first grade or so, uh, I was uh, in bed with rheumatic fever for uh, over a year. And all I had was this little radio that they hooked up in my my bedroom way up in the woods of Maine. There was only one station they could get and that was problematical. And uh, but I did fall in love with the radio because uh, it was my companion. So I became very attracted to communication and uh, decided to go to Emerson College in Boston 
And uh, it worked from there, studying uh, broadcasting subjects and what have you, that uh, I really liked performing. So you you aren't the whole time saying, curse this stuff. I really wish I could be a radio station administrator. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> if only I could be a station manager. That's yes. <laughs> and then this will all be out of the way. <laughs> My dreams the, the are foiled. Regret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so that, that's how it started. And, um, and then did you start performing theater when you were in college or did that come out yes. of that? Yes, in college. And I was very attracted to it, and uh, the powers that be were giving me a very positive push on maintaining that, and uh, so I did. I don't regret it one bit. Very interesting how these major decisions you make in your life sometimes come to you without your realization of how big that decision is going to be. So it wasn't until later in life that I said, hey, that, that was... Very lucky, and I was very glad I made those decisions way back then when they really didn't matter. How did you transition from that to jumping into television? I, was, it a, was it a hard transition at that time, or, or did it turn into a fairly easy transition? It was an extremely easy transition, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I was in the Circle and Square Theater, and we were doing a play, Thornton Wilder's Our Town. And NBC, and it was a huge success, uh, and NBC decided that they would make a television show of Our Town. And the uh, director was Jose Quintero, very fine young director at that time. And uh, he chose for his cast on the television show many people from the off-Broadway production that he had also directed. So here's a bunch of us going into television, some of us for the first time. It was a, an amazing thing. I, I wasn't nervous at all. We were all standing around our NBC microphones in New York City, and the program started with an announcement by the network, which they made at that time for all shows that were coming, uh, that were coming out of New York City. We were standing there at our microphones, and this voice came on and said, And now, live from New York. And we just melted. <laughs> I mean, everybody calm and ready to go. And then, <laughs> you know, that's a, it's, I'm so glad you said that because this whole time I'm thinking you are, you're standing with a group of people in an industry that just scants, you know, years before did not exist. Right. Exactly. I mean, like, like the, there is no one with a level of expertise in performing on television when you started performing on television. That's true. How do you go about creating a career for yourself in which you have ostensibly no role models? Well, <laughs> that's, that's why it was successful, because I seemed to know what to do. <laughs> you faked <laughs> it well. <laughs> or, or, how to go, <laughs> or how to go about it, you know? Yeah. Now. It, it, everything was working. Everything was working fine. Um, that uh, show of our town went on television was very successful. 
And um, so although I was doing theater there in New York, off-Broadway theater at the time, um, every once in a while now after, after that show, they, they would hire me for other television things that were being done in New York. So I sort of crept into the industry. And you're right. There was no nothing to guide you at all. Early television in New York City, for example, they did a lot of costume drama for national television mm -hmm. in New York for some reason. Mm -hmm. As soon as you finished the scene, you would go running to your dressing room and there'd be people there to help you, and you would have rehearsed this, changing your clothes with them and everything else, and rushing back on to walk on to the television stage. So, so, so in a way, theater really prepared you for this, because, I mean, it, it's very similar, right? That's right. That's right. And <laughs> it was uh, very confusing. Some people coming would come on and they would have the old shoes and socks on. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things that is absolutely hell, was absolutely hell to do. But as soon as it was over, it was wonderful. But we've talked about two of your uh, films already. And, uh, you know, one of them, uh, we're talking about the hospital. You've worked with uh, George C. Scott. Uh, you then worked with him again in uh, Petulia in 68, and the hospital in 71, yeah. and, and obviously the last days of Patton. And, and I'm curious about how your relationship with George C. Scott sort of evolved. Is it just luck? That you end up working with him on those projects, or does that is that does that come as a, a more of calculated happenstance based on this uh, a friendship that you're developing with? Yes, with him I, I developed George and I developed a very good friendship. We all actors drank in those days. <laughs> in in those days, yeah, in those days, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, we became very good friends uh, very fast. We both had had military service and stuff like that. I was doing uh, small roles in great plays at the old Circle in the Square, and so was George. And uh, we weren't in a play together, but he, uh, for some reason, sort of. Uh, took me under his wing, and he wasn't an old man. He was a, pretty much of a kid at the same time. And uh, his uh, Colleen Dewhurst, uh, who was his uh, second wife, I guess, <laughs> and I were also very good friends. It was George who uh, got me into that. Uh, well, we were talking about East Side, West Side. Yeah. Oh, the TV show, West, East Side, West Side. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. East Side, West Side, which was... Uh, television and uh, it was in New York. So anyway, I was in good company. Let's put it that way. You continue working in TV for a while, but it's around that same time in the early 60s when you, you make that, I guess, the next transition going from radio to theater to, to live television. And now you jump to the world of feature films, which is kind of a, a, another an entire entity that you're jumping into and you it, from from what i can tell it looks like you started as an uncredited uh, in an uncredited role as an accountant working <laughs> with steve mcqueen and uh, natalie wood in their movie love with the proper stranger that's right that, yeah that was the first feature film and were you to go see that film today or see it on television or what you'd never notice me <laughs> 
You're, you're the guy in the corner. <laughs> I was the guy in the corner. In, well, in a corner of a very crowded room. <laughs> and uh, it, it, my one line was something, I forget who was the star of that, walking by me and he, uh, he said something to me and I gave him a funny retort. It was just all part of the creating the climate of the scene, so to speak. But to me, that was worth starting my uh, resume because I was I was in there by God and I did it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to go wrong starting off in a Steve McQueen movie. You know, that's a good place to start. Oh yes, what? <laughs> how hard was it in, in those days at working in TV? How hard was it to kind of jump from the small screen to the big screen? Was that a a difficult transition at that time, or or was it fairly easy because of this new medium that everyone was tapping into? Yes, uh, I th I think well, since I didn't know very much about either medium. Um, one just seemed to, to fall in line with the other from an actress point of view. Yeah. And uh, that's, uh, I don't recall being concerned about that at all. Um, the I, because in those days they were all being done on film, the television was done on with huge cameras on the floor rolling all over the place rolling over their own cords and uh, uh, you know firing and everything else to get from one side of the stage to the other <laughs> and cameras get all tied up in the middle of the production and couldn't move from one place to another oh i tell you it wasn't funny but uh in retrospect, it was hilarious. <laughs> the struggles of dealing with the new technologies, right? Right. Uh, I wasn't quite that concerned about the, the technology being new. Of course, I knew it was new. I knew that that jump was different. And you see, the industry changed at the same time. The television battle between... Southern California and uh, New York City was won by uh, California. Most of the television industry grew up out here, which is the normal thing to do, I guess, when you have film already here. You've got people who understand film. Going to tape didn't really affect us that much. Or live television. Live television was the bugger. You had to really keep awake. <laughs> of course, you're awake anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you really had to be aware of what was coming. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yes. Say, sage advice, Dick. Always stay awake if you're a live television actor. <laughs> <laughs> and even, even if you're a dead one. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the work, and I think I looked at it as much I won't say as a game, but, um, and I did take it extremely seriously because it was rapidly pulling me away from the stage into programs that were being done in New York City on television and, and uh, film. Later on, 72, I think it was, I moved, moved my life out here. I would come out and do a film and then go back to New York and mm -hmm. 
I pretty soon realized how my life was heading, and so I moved out here. Seems like it, a fairly major commitment. Yes. Com- commitment uh, to a career direction by making that move. That's true. Well, somewhere in the back of the head, I was sort of hoping that that would happen, that I would get out here because uh, it's much more dependable work. Uh, Television and film work, much more dependable here than it is in New York. Of course, for films, they'll uh, take you from your hometown to wherever they want you to be. But in those days, that wasn't quite as broad as it is now. As as we look at your catalog of of films, you know you you have been in. Uh, I I don't I I can't seem to find a genre of film that you haven't necessarily uh, performed in, from satires to westerns to horrors to creature films, sci-fi films, Christmas films, dramas. But but you do always seem to come back to these uh, uh, to these films based on true stories. At least not that you come back to them, but it seems like you land in them. Uh, you, you know, you played Eisenhower twice and Truman twice, and Truman twice. I mean, really, uh, that you played Truman twice, and then and then this. Gary Sinise takes it for you after you've already played Come on. Yes, he did take it. And it into me, too. Because I played Secretary of War Stimson in that film. Right. right. And I remember when uh, uh, Sinise is a very, very nice man, an excellent actor, and we got along very well. And uh, he would uh, he would we'd be rehearsing a scene and such. And I would be looking at him, and I might nod my head, no. <laughs> That's not true. Come on. <laughs> you had to school him a little bit, huh? <laughs> yes. But it was, uh, it was but, sort of fun to do. All right, we're talking, obviously, in 1995's uh, uh, Truman. This whole sense about you uh, kind of dealing with these uh, these films based on uh, true stories, what is it that draws you to these stories? How do you find you... Uh, was that another bit of uh, kind of calculated happenstance that draws you to these roles, or, uh, or, or are you going in with uh, more intention than that? No, I didn't go in with more intention of it. And in fact, uh, I, d- I was aware that, that I was playing people who were alive or, or uh, interesting people who were no longer alive. And... Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed doing research on prog- on uh, projects. I like to go and really uh, find out all I can about these people. You have to be careful that you don't insert <laughs> something uh, bad about a character or overly good. Uh, that that you know about them that doesn't have anything to do with the film at all. You know what I mean? Well, I I think that's a really interesting point, the fact that you are, you know, you're sort of adding to the historical view of the characters that you play. That's true. That's true. I had never looked at it from that point of view, but it's very true. And, And as I say, I have thought through the years how come I'm getting all these people, uh, you know, that, that are uh, more so than ordinary films that have their own stories that aren't about anybody you know anyway? Right. Uh, and uh, I, you're in a kind of an interesting position, though, when you look at playing Eisenhower twice and Truman twice, these major, you know, historical figures for this country. Do you find you played them differently 
across those movies? Eisenhower, the first thing I remember was when I put on that uniform and looked in the mirror, I just gasped. Uh, I was already made up and uh, with the makeup on, and uh, I, I just didn't know what to think or say or anything. It, it, it impressed me more than it impressed anybody else, I guess. But um, the power of uh, wardrobe, the power of uh, things like uh, within the industry, it was very, uh, very clear to me at that time. And that's got to be pretty uh, interesting, looking at yourself as Eisenhower and having that moment. And then, and the same thing with Truman, looking at yourself as Truman. And, and as an actor, I think that's one of, the, one of the magical things that draws people not just to become actors, but also to, to watch and to enjoy these stories, is seeing these people like you transform from Richard Dysart to becoming, uh, you know, Truman or Eisenhower or any of the or Louis B. Mayer or whoever it is. Yes, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, Louis B. Louis B. Mayer. I played several uh, Hollywood bigwigs. Jack Warner, for example. You're right, Warner and Louis B. Mayer, and then of course there's uh, the uh, the fictional but but equally interesting Hollywood story of uh, of the Day of the Locust. Oh, yes. Oh, I, th I think that's a great film. I still do. I don't know. I think that they said, oh, well, here, look, look at this actor. He plays people with the way people, those particular people are, which is what I was doing. I'm not just a regular character. Yeah. And uh, with the research and everything, it was... Uh, it, it it all worked out good because I kept getting work after work after work of presidents and generals and all, all these uh, interesting men. Well, it's it's an interesting thing. You know, I keep looking at this, trying to figure out. This is how I was trying to parse this question was, it, you know, would you see yourself as uh, being typecast for a, a, a particular type of role? And. Uh, you know, hearing you talk about this, it seems like not necessarily for a type of role, but certainly for, uh, gosh, how you say it, people. Yes, exactly. That's what I was trying to say, too. I couldn't get around it. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's sort of uh, uh, unusual, I think. I don't know how many actors have put that much of their career into other people's lives. Are there any that stand out to you that you feel, man, I really feel like I did that that person justice? That like you you really feel like you you created a defining performance for that person? Yes, Churchill and the Generals, the BBC production. There was a scene where a relatively short two-person scene with uh, Eisenhower and Churchill, and it was. Churchill's uh, Eisenhower's duty in that scene to let Churchill know that uh, Eisenhower has been put in between Roosevelt and Churchill. That Churchill had uh, <laughs> had somebody over him other than the President of the United States. It, it was very well written. It was a put down to Churchill. But mm -hmm. uh, it was a because of historical facts and and things 
that had sort of had to happen. Eisenhower was going to be in charge of the whole game over there. And this was before that happened. Uh, so you've played, uh, you've played a number now of U.S. presidents. Which, uh, which president that you played do you feel you'd have been most likely to vote for based on your portrayal of him? Uh, based on my portrayal? Yes. Oh, I vote for both of them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think uh, Eisenhower, although Truman had more heart, so to speak. He got to be president through a much different way than Eisenhower did. And he was very well, well, politically, Truman, you know, he was a senator from a Midwestern state and nobody knew much about him, didn't care much about him until all of a sudden, Womal, he's president. Sort of a lesson uh, to, a political lesson to everybody that the office of vice president is not just what somebody can get for you in terms of votes or how they look or anything like that, but you get to be uh, right with it, I guess. I don't know quite how to explain that. Well, you have to be, you have to be ready to jump in. I mean, you really have to be ready to be president, right? Right. Well, and I think, I think that's, a, that's a great point, that, that yes. you know, the media portrayal of, of, of Truman and that transition uh, has, has actually— I think defined a lot of the media narrative since that that has become a question in you know in debates and in you know since since yeah. that time I think that's that's a very powerful statement. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I think it sort of reflects well on both of them. My uh, Truman. If I had to spend time with one of them, I, I'd rather spend it with Truman. I think that's probably a better question than the one we asked. Well. That's- <laughs> <laughs> the same thing. So, <laughs> were we to go out to dinner, and of course Eisenhower was very dramatic. Truman was not dramatic, but somehow he came off as a stronger person. It's because he wasn't trying to be a dramatic president. He wasn't saying, oh, I'm speaking with all the power that the president has and all that. He, the Truman didn't do that. It was just the uh, same old uh, Truman from the Midwest. I graduated up to the top of the the game. <laughs> One of the early films that we we reviewed of of yours was this uh, was Arthur Hiller's film, The Hospital, uh, written by Patty Chayefsky. What what is it that drew you to this film in particular? I had a great regard for Patty Chayefsky. I I wanted to see his work. I wanted to be around when his work was being done. He was a true master of the human condition. I think. And he was uh, he was very demanding as a as a director. In fact, Chayefsky as as a writer, he would go for every scene, every shot that was put together in that movie, the hospital, sitting right beside the camera as close as he could get, watching the scene unfold and listening to make sure every syllable that he wrote was spoken. He was a real uh, uh, professional about actors learning his words and, and not occasionally substituting something of their own. I think that was that's a very big thing. I've heard through the years uh, that uh, some scenes didn't fully work in a film because somebody had changed a few lines in there or a few words. And the movie writers have to be and are very careful that their storyline and their treatment of the characters 
are all one, all the same, all uh, given a lot of consideration. Well, of course, Arthur, and call me right back. I'm at the Holly Provision, 8th floor. Hurry, please. All right, Wilbur. Am I all right? That son of a bitch is trying to wipe me out. My partner, the eminent orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Noel Nohogan, is a miserable thief, and he is trying to wipe me out. Charge, doctor. What? Oh, what room is it? 806. I'm expecting a phone call. Put it straight through to me in that room. Son of a bitch has been draining the company with phony purchase orders on another company. Of which it now turns out his wife is the principal stockholder. Transparent fraud. I'll send him up for 20 years. Well, Drummond, you don't seem that much the worse for wear. Or would you mind using some other phone? I'm expecting an important what call. What is this? Who, who is this guy? Yes, well, I'll be at the nurse's desk, sir. Yeah, you got a bit of a fever, Drummond. You'll be futile for me to try to explain well. this to you. I'm not Drummond, you monkey. Drummond's the other bed. That's mine. Hello, it's well back here. Yes, Arthur, go ahead. I'm getting out of this nut house. Just take it easy, Mr. Me. <laughs> I came in here just to get a lousy polyp cut out. My God, what do you mean? How many transactions were there? But, but Arthur, I, I borrowed against that stock. I'm, 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 I'm in the man, whole room. I'm supposed to have peace quiet. What do you mean, Brazil? I talked to Hogan's office yesterday and they told I'm wiped out. The SEC has suspended trading in my stock. Well, Beck. What is your experience as an actor working with someone who exhibits such uh, such direct control as Chayefsky did as a writer on this film? Well, you go with what's going on. Some directors will not say anything to the actors before the scene is shot. All while the scene is being shot. Writers, I'm talking about. Writers, they, they stay very quiet on a set. But Chayefsky was a takeover guy. And he wanted the movie to be his words, his feelings, and his, uh, all progressing his ideas. It's interesting that you say that because, I mean, Patty Chayefsky came from theater and television uh, kind of like you did. And in the world of theater, the writer really is the one who kind of had the uh, kind of had the control, had the say over how things worked out. And in film or in yeah, in film, it seems like um, the writer is usually more of a, a kind of a servant for the director who seems to be the person with the, the final choice and the final say in how right. the product is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and so it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know what the experience was with Arthur Hiller and Patty Chayefsky and their relationship on the film. Um, but it, from an actor's perspective, I guess as long as there's that person who has the vision, it, it doesn't necessarily matter to you if it's the writer or the director, as long as somebody is there with the vision. Yes, that's true. And it's the vision that you've got to really follow and hope that nobody messes you up on the way to getting there. What did you think of the film when it came out? I, Patty Chayefsky said after the movie came out, I mean, it was a really, it's a scathing look at the medical system and hospitals. And he said he was afraid to go to hospitals after the movie came out because he was afraid of the doctors, you, you know, getting back at him. And it just, it sounded like he was, I mean, it was not fun for him, the idea of hospitals after this film. Did you experience any of that? Or is that just kind of something that, uh, that really was, was in his head? It happens to me every time I go to the doctor. <laughs> 
You're, are you serious? If I don't know the doctor and have full trust and things like that, how do I know what that person says? Oh, you're in the house. <laughs> Why did we call him? Interestingly, speaking of, uh, you know, Patty Chayefsky earlier, and, and as a writer who kind of had more control over his pictures and was working as a producer on a lot of his projects, you're right. We do see that actually with a lot of actors now who are very bright. They really understand the system and who are coming on and producing their own projects now. And it's, you know, it really has become a medium for just smart people to excel in as long as they know what they're doing, wherever, whatever their role happens to be. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, even if they're on the periphery of a movie, uh, mm -hmm. they're in a position to do something like that. This, that's true. I think um, in all of the talents in the film industry, the people who are performing the doobies today are a hell of a lot smarter, brighter, and considerate than the people who uh, came before them. Uh, speaking of brainy people, in 1979, you uh, were in uh, Being There. It's one of our all-time favorite films. Uh, and, and a fascinating look at politics and the media and this relationship between the two, a sort of cultural collision. He's gone, Chauncey. Yes, I know, Robert. I've seen this before. It happens to old people. Will you be leaving now, Robert? It's in a day or two. Yes. Eve is staying. She said she will not close up the house. You've become quite a close friend of Eve's, haven't you, Chance? Yes. Yes. I... I love Eve very much. And you really are a gardener, aren't you? I, I am. Gardener. Well, I'll go and tell Eve about Ben. I understand. I understand. How did you come to end up in, uh, in being there? It was a novella, you know. Uh, what's his name? <laughs> guy who wrote it. Uh, that was Jersey Kaczynski, I believe. Uh, Jersey Kaczynski is right. He wrote it as a novella and then was given the opportunity to have the first attack of writing the screenplay. And he did very, very well. See, when we're doing being there, by chance, I was told by somebody who shouldn't have told anybody, a doctor, I was told uh, Sellers was not well. And in fact, he did die, I guess, a matter of weeks after the movie was released or when it was finished. He didn't want anyone to know that. So I kept it secret and uh, he, he would go in and out of his character. He explained that the character he was playing and being there was the most difficult that he'd ever attempted. I could see why. Uh, he has so many considerations that had to be made in the movie. He uh, would stay in character all the time. He was anywhere near the set, and this that film was being shot 
well, it was shot here in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., and Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, a lot of it was shot down there. He had a fine understanding of it, I'll tell you that. It's my favorite film of, uh, of all that I've made, and I think it's one of my favorite films of all time. I, I mean, there's no question about that. Al Ashby, I mean, he had every department in that production company was top boss and doing exactly what he wanted, which was necessary. I think he was a great director. He really was a, a very humanist, humanist director. His films really tap into amazing characters that are just fascinating to become a part of for the two hours that you get to watch them in their films. Right. That's true. He, uh, he's fine. He's fine. And I, I just loved that film. I loved the making of it. I didn't know, you know, you don't know what's going to happen to a movie, whether it's going to be hit or not. And you don't pay much attention to that because you don't have that much control over it. Um, it's the people that come along afterwards and, and sell the audience on it and uh, things like that that really control films these days. And you'd be surprised when people say, oh, when you were in being there. And I said, I would say, I wasn't about to say no. And <laughs> <laughs> and uh, being there different from any of the other films it's as if oh I'd forgotten about that film yes I love that film I think being there was a big hit particularly with I, I don't know how to say this uh, educated people <laughs> you, you can go to jail for that saying that <laughs> Yes, that's not very PC of you. <laughs> oh, I guess not. I, I have a hard time uh, making a transition from that conversation about being there, especially after hearing you say it's your favorite film that you've ever done, because my favorite film that you've ever done, because of just the place that it has in my heart and my nightmares, is The Thing, 1982. Yeah. Well, you, you uh, personally and individually cursed me for years Dick Dysart you that d I would if good, I good, good. man if I ever was having any sort of if I saw you climb on top of my chest to start CPR uh -huh. uh. <laughs> well I don't think that's going to be necessary <laughs> but if it is have you checkbook Andy <laughs> Gary Hey, you guys, come here! Martin. Somebody got to the blood. What? Where's Clark? Right here. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Was this broken into? No, the lock is undamaged. Somebody opened it, closed it, and then locked it. Great. Well, who's got access to it? I guess I'm the only one. And I got the only key. Did that test have worked, Doc? Oh, I think so, yes. Somebody else sure as hell thought so. Well, who else could have used that key? Nobody. I just give it to Copper whenever he needs it. Could anybody have gotten it from you, Doc? I don't see how. As soon as I'm finished, I return it right away. Great. When was the last time you used it? Huh? A day or so ago, I guess. I suppose 
Somebody could have lifted it off me. Oh, that's... come on. That key ring of yours is always hooked to your belt. Well, it's not I'm accusing everybody. Hey, you stop it! No, it ain't worth it! Popper's the only one who's got any business with it. Oh, now, wait a minute, Gary. You've been in here on several occasions. Doc thought of the test. So what? Is that supposed to clear him? Well, why Bullshit! Why would he come Shut here and take a... No! Wait up! That was, uh, you know, that that came around uh, at a time, I think, for, you know, at least you're talking to me and Andy at a time that's that is, um, you know, that's, that's fairly formative in our in our uh, cinema going uh, age, you know, um, <laughs> you know, for for me, that movie defines a lot of what a creature horror film is. Uh, what's after coming from uh, from you know films like Being There? How do you end up in a creature horror film like this with John, uh, uh, like this film with John or from John Carpenter? Well, it's not easy. Uh, <laughs> I really don't know. I knew John Carpenter. Uh, he cast me out of the blue, I guess. I hadn't spoken to him before. Uh, the possibility came up. I didn't go out and say, hey, I want to do this, I want to do that. I've never done that. Carpenter is, uh, I think he's a brilliant director. I think he has an extremely keen sense of the human condition, so to speak. Fancy phrase. But I think he, I think he does. And I think he is able to put that into his film. Now, the thing, we started shooting it at Universal Studios, I think in the very late spring or early summer of that production year. We shot all the interior scenes on sets at Universal. And then sometime in early November, they gave us a week or so off and then uh, flew us up to Canada and Alaska right on the border, Stewart, British Columbia, and the uh, town, little tiny little town I can't think of in on the Alaska side of the border. Well, I noticed that in one of those towns, the only thing on the main street, which wasn't very long, was some kind of a store, market, and about five or six bars. Of course, we were shooting only exteriors up there. And at that time of year, it's dark all the time. So it was wonderful, wonderful to shoot night scenes up there. Because you're doing it at two o'clock in the afternoon. All day long, yeah. <laughs> I, I liked that movie very much. And I admire for John Carpenter for one reason. He had the responsibility in that movie of killing off 12 major characters in the movie. Right. Um, that's not easy to do. <laughs> I was going to say, he is he is very efficient at it. Very that is a rare skill. And he's not redundant. <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> he's, he's a good... He's a good director, and, and I liked him, and he he uh, he did an excellent job there. Speaking to the ways that everyone gets killed off and how unique it all is, uh, Rob Bottin did all the these absolutely horrific creature effects in that film aren't they and, terrific oh yeah. uh, they're amazing and you know it it you know pete and i often pine for the days when you had those real effects of of 
just tangible stuff that the actors were actually working with. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was it like being on set with these just amazing and truly horrifying, you know, creature effects that uh, that Rob Bottin was coming up with? Yes. Well, most of the effects are added after. If there's sound involved or such as that, sure, they'll uh, put them together afterwards with all the effects that uh, are required. So you don't run into those effects very much, but you just have to be very sure of what's going on in the film in the next scene that, that's coming along and the scene that preceded it. Very difficult to stay online. You you do actually uh, directly run into one of these effects uh, and lose uh, your arms. Yes. Uh, in the the chest of a um, at this point reviving Vance. Yes, I was reviving him. He was stretched out on a on a uh, what do you call it a, a gurney? Yeah, like a big gurney or medical yeah. table. Tall med- medical table. And uh, curled up on top of him and started check his uh, feet, face, and, and everything to see if he's still alive. And it's find out that he is, and trying to get pushed down, getting more air into his body. And all of a sudden, his stomach just op- splits open wide, and there's going a hole there. And my hands go down into it. And my arms go down, and my body goes out of frame, off the bottom of the frame, for a second or two. And then when I come back up, that one shot was done by a stuntman, a man who worked at Universal and had no lower section to his arms. Really? Yeah. And he was an employee of, of Universal, so I no was. No kidding. And uh, he was just just right for the for the part. So they put him into my clothes and uh, or similar, you know. And uh, he gets up there and puts his head down and comes up, and they've got blood all over, spurting all oh. over the place. Oh yes, it was and, everywhere. And the, <laughs> the stubs of his arms around. And then did they like do a like a, a mold of your face for him or just a mask. they put a mask on? Yeah, oh, wow. I guess it was a mold. It wasn't uh, that complicated, but it was it was uh, it was strong. It was going to hold together and everything like that. And the face I did the scenes that followed, which would come in on me waving my arms without the camera on the arm on the tops of the arms. So yeah. it didn't matter. I think we shot one of those first so that when he, the, the stunt double, came up out of that with his arms having been bitten off at the elbows, he knows what was on my face. He has seen my face. Right. He was masking me. He was covering, making his face do what my face was doing. But there, there was so little time there in that area that it didn't, uh, it worked very well. It worked very well. I tell you, when I when I first saw it, the only thing I was looking at were the bloody stumps. That's all I was paying attention to. <laughs> well, that actor was a steam sealer. <laughs> anyway, it's uh, and then uh, and then the fellow who's lying there on the on the gurney, 
his head falls off. Right. <laughs> and lands beside him, just rolls off to the side, and still on the on the gurney, and sprouts legs like a, a spider, a crab, and becomes a crab head, falls off the top behind the fellow's head, down onto the floor, and I don't know whether the scene is in the movie or not, but they did film that head with the uh, crab leg claws going across the floor. Oh, it's, it's in, in there. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's horrible. It's, yeah, it is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't even realize. I got so tied up in the, uh, you know, making the scene, I didn't realize how powerful that scene was going to be. And uh, I remember seeing a uh, a rush of it uh, at the, at the studio for the cast and such. And that whole studio just came right up out of their seat. It was unbelievable. And uh, I saw it later in a regular movie house, and some people did uh, get very uh, uh, tied up in it. It's uh, it's an excellent scene, excellently done by the producer and all makeup and wardrobe and effects and everything. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the cast. I mean, you're working with this cast, you know, Kurt Russell, Wilfred Brimley, T.K. Carter, David Clennon, Keith David. Uh, it, these, I mean, these guys who are not necessarily known, I guess, uh, you know, now in, right. in, in some respect, these guys are known for, for some of their more sort of action-oriented roles, but not really known at the time for their, uh, you know, their horror roles, yeah. and yet they come together w- with you in this cast that is uh, that is extremely tight knit in a genre film that is out of genre. What's it like, sort of, building the camaraderie with these guys on cast and uh, or on set, and and uh, you know, making this absolutely terrifying film for uh, me and Andy? As I implied earlier, we worked a long time on that movie from the middle of summer till Christmas. Uh, the the, the uh, beginning of summer until Christmas, so we uh, we got to know each other very well. Fortunately, all the uh, all of it turned out good, and I think because of that, um, we had developed a trust in each other as actors. We could just go along and do what we're supposed to do. I imagine it's really nice working in an environment where you develop a great camaraderie with all of the actors that you're working with. Right. You know they're good. You know they're going to do it and do it right. It's very fulfilling to know that you're in something that that uh, has that truth and uh, superior acting. Yeah, I'm very impressed with that film. Still am. Are you, uh, are you generally a fan of the uh, gross-out uh, creature effects films? No. No. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I, I won't say I don't like them. I, I just that... Uh, your, your personal catalog is not uh, rich in this area? <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I just don't go to them. Well, I think the most important question, uh, I, I think, uh, about this film in particular is, have you seen the prequel remake? Uh, of the thing that just came out a couple of years ago. No, I didn't see it. I knew that they did it. Then I heard it was coming out, and I haven't heard anything about it since. Do you do you know That's, any of the history of it? Oh, it's probably best not that we don't talk about it. <laughs> it's, it's, 
You sold the right one. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. We definitely Your, we've talked about the right. You, you, you made the right choice. Yours right. is the yours is the one to watch. <laughs> the, uh, also, the first the thing that was right. in mid fifty, early fifty fifty three or something like that. And uh, I certainly saw saw that film. Mm-hmm. And I'm very impressed with it. Well, you know, that's actually an interesting question. Did you, uh, how much of your sort of, um, I guess I should say collectively, your preparation for the film is based on the uh, the short story? Short story, you're right, that's true. It's a great guide and a great director, even though it's not the script that you're working on. Right, right. You're right. It still gives you a sense of kind of the, the yes. story and it gives you a little more flesh to it. Right. I was told it was the first The Thing movie that it was shot in downtown Los Angeles in an ice room, a company that froze water for ice to be taken out and peddled around and brought to people's homes for their refrigerators. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, and uh, by that time, they'd pretty much gone out of style, but the first film was filmed in a, a total, very cold large empty room seems uh, like no matter what anyone who makes a version of this story is is determined to put their actors in in cold temperatures <laughs> <laughs> it's true we <laughs> uh, sure had them up on when we were shooting the exteriors up uh, on a mountainside near Stewart British Columbia at Christmas time we I think our prevailing temperature in what you and I think of as the daytime, but which is practically night um, because there's no sun, uh, was 17 degrees below. Oh, jeez. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> we were all dressed up well. Nobody was cold or anything like that. Our, our, our costumes not only looked right, but they served their purpose very well and kept us warm. You've done a bunch of uh, voice work uh, in animation. Yes, since the eighties. How you uh, do you do you have a specific affinity for for this stuff, or do you? Uh, I mean, you've obviously got a fantastic uh, voice for it, and it, you know, to me, you've Spawn is constantly in my head. And you know, is it something that you are specifically drawn to, or is this another uh, another one that an agent has spotted you and just well, keeps you working? Well, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a separate job by itself, right? I just like it. It by watching the scene without the sound, without your voice, you still get a very solid feeling of what the energy is in the scene. And and the benefit of, of doing the animated projects is you can do it in your pajamas. That's <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd have thought of that. <laughs> a tip learned too late. <laughs> well, you've done a you've done a good variety of them. I mean, you you did some voices in the Smurfs. Um, you did voices in the GoBots. Uh, you the English translated version of Castle in the Sky by Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, Batman and like Pete said, Spawn. I mean, a really good variety of of uh, animated projects. That's by chance. That's uh, just by chance. I didn't select those on purpose. I like the idea of doing voice work, so uh, it, it was just a natural thing for me to do, I guess. But I didn't uh, select them all. There again is somebody saying, oh, he does good work. 
Uh, so call him again. I want to make sure we don't uh, minimize what is, uh, you know, I think largely your most memorable and long-term uh, role, which is, uh, uh, you know, L.A. Law. Yes. You played senior partner Leland McKenzie uh, in 171 episodes of this show, eight seasons, 1986 to 1984, and again in 2002 for the reunion movie. Uh, it's obviously recognized as one of the greats. It comes with some fantastic, not only cliffhanger, but aha, jaw-dropping, gobsmacking moments, uh, it, you know, including, uh, I, I believe, the number 38 uh, most uh, thrilling moments in television history. Nominated for four Emmys and uh, winning in 1992, Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series, beating Jimmy Smits, which, you know... That guy needs to come down a few notches. Am I right? Let me explain that. Oh no, 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 no! I don't. It was just a joke. There's no explanation at all. Uh, what I really, I what I'm really interested in is, is if you could just share on a little bit of how you, you, what drew you to this role in particular. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by how you ended up as the uh, certainly spiritual leaders of the uh, of this cast and uh, creating such an epic imprint. Uh, in the legal drama. It's the very subject matter itself was local. The script was superior. And so you had a pretty good chance of knowing what you're going to do. And if you can sell that for uh, help the producers with good performances, uh, it's going to be around for a long time. And so it proved for eight years. Did you know that it was going to be? I mean, is this one of those things where you read that first script for the pilot and have a sense that this is going to be something special? That's right. I've had that with films, too. It's, it's uncanny. Uh, being there, for example, mm -hmm. and people were saying, well, it's, it's a little obtuse. It's a little, uh, uh, I don't know what they were saying about it. And I said, no, this is a funny, funny movie. It treats its characters very well. This is going to be hot. The same feeling for L.A. Law. Oh, yes. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, it has Stephen Bochco, the name attached to it, and he had been a very busy man uh, leading up to this show. And so that certainly, uh, I, I'm guessing, would be something that would draw you to... Uh, oh, of course. I knew Stephen before. I'm not very well, but he knew my work and stuff like that. And I certainly knew his work. And I wanted to be part of it. Rosalind Shea, strong character, who came along in the fifth season, I guess. I think it was season four. Season four. Mm -hmm. Tries to take the firm away from me and just about succeeds. That yeah. was quite a season. That you know, it was quite a, an interesting introduction to the season with her coming in, uh, trying to take over as you're stepping down, leading to... The secret tryst that everybody learns that you two are actually having. <laughs> yes. I think that that particular episode, I think, played very, very close to Christmas. It really shocked a lot of people. <laughs> Not yes. quite the Christmas present your fans were expecting, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah. My, my fans uh, don't expect that from me at all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she's a marvelous actress was and, and is, I guess, she's still going. She uh, was very successful with that role because she made the American audience hate her, and yet they liked her because of the way she used her power. It's a writer's challenge, actually, 
and very well performed. I didn't know. I don't think any of the cast knew how that was going to come out, her attempt to take over the firm and what would happen to Leland. The very basic idea to me was that I always knew I had a contract (laughs) (laughs) and I was going to get paid. We finished shooting L.A. Law and the follow-up sound work on it on the last day of uh, of the season, it was two days before or after my 65th birthday. Everybody said, oh, this is a good time for you to retire. I could have retired, but I just, I, I wasn't ready for it and I knew it. So I stayed on until I was 70. When I got to be 70, I said, okay, it's, uh, it seems right time for you to get out of here. I've got to hear your opinion on how they elected to get Rosalind Shays off the show. That was, I mean, that was, I don't know, for, to me, that was more legendary than discovering the secret tryst. Yes, right, it was. Uh, well, she was brought in in the latter part of the season to fulfill the part of this domineering, excellent lawyer who sees that the the old man is about to retire and, and uh, starts to take over the firm, trying very carefully while being very sweet to me, even luring me into bed. Having her fall down that elevator shaft. Oh, the shaft. That yeah, was it's... so shocking. The, you are having such a wonderful little conversation, and it's just so, it's just kind of innocuous, and you know that there's been a lot of drama and buildup, and everybody's really, you know, and, and then the elevator doors open, and she just disappears. She does. And uh, I said to Stephen Bachko before, I said, you know, Steve, <laughs> I don't know what the audience is going to think about this. Maybe I should somehow work it that I can keep my hands in view of the camera at all times. <laughs> because all oh, neighbors were calling me saying, why did you push her down that elevator shaft? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, they just love to think the worst of television characters. Rosalind, I'm sorry I can't marry you. This isn't about that. This is about that. For the past week, I've been getting nothing but resentment. You know that's true. I don't resent you, Leland. If anything, maybe I resent myself. For staying with a man who doesn't love you. I really don't want to talk about it. Ah! Oh my God! Did you find it a satisfying resolution to that arc? Um, I don't know what her personal history was with this, but I think they needed that character for one purpose. And once that purpose is uh, denied or completed, they don't need it. Plus, they have 12 other ongoing characters all the time. They don't need more. And we weren't at that time in the business of adding characters. Mm-hmm. We changing actors a lot and directors and producers. But it's the actors there still doing their work that were, we were holding the show together during its final few years. Well, it was a wonderful resolution, uh, absolutely legendary resolution for me, I'll tell you that.
Oh, man. Never Definitely forget a shocker. It. Definitely a shocker. It's high on the list. That, that the, the discovery, and uh, figuring out who shot JR. Those are pretty much the big ones for me. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> That's good company to be in. It is good company. That's, I'm, I'm telling you, you're right up there. <laughs> well, Dick, I, I mean, it's been wonderful talking to you uh, just about your, your life and everything you've been involved. Is there anything that, uh, any roles that you wish you had the chance to play or or anything that's just like oh i i regret that i mean we already know about the uh, the radio engineer we know that that's the big regret of your life yes <laughs> but... my my kingdom for a, a job in in uh, radio administration <laughs> <laughs> boy i forgot that one i'll tell you <laughs> <laughs> but is there anything else that stands out as like one of those those things that you wish you could have had a chance to do um no i suppose on the way there have been roles that i say gee i'd like to play that but they don't return to me, and I don't very often see what somebody else does with them. I don't do any I haven't worked for about, oh, 13, 14 years. I uh, let my agent go and all the periphery and uh, have had nothing to do. I haven't been in a studio since uh, I uh, gave up the ghost at age 70. Uh, have come up with, uh, I don't know, what I, what I feel is a pretty honest way of uh, just living an ordinary life. What does that look like for you right now, Dick? Yeah, yeah I'm sitting on the floor talking to people. I know. I, this is, you've made, you've made me my new claim to fame. <laughs> I, I gave up driving about three years ago on my own, nothing to do with the police. That's, that's lucky. Yeah, very lucky that I made that decision. I went to uh, a red light. I was going along, and whoops, all of a sudden I found myself stopping in the middle of an intersection. Well, that's not uh, not a great place to stop. Not, no. What is a place to say, I think I better get away from this automobile. And I have. Otherwise, I'm very pleased to be in, in my home here in uh, Santa Monica, just uh, half a mile from the ocean. And um, I'm, I'm just very happy. I kick the dog a bit, you know? <laughs> well, you're supposed to do that. You give up the car, there's a certain mantle that you take on. <laughs> Oh boy! Do you? Uh, I mean, you don't read any of the industry stuff. Do you find you you uh, watching any television or seeing any movies that are that are your uh, of note that you particularly like these days? I'm trying something new this year. I'm a member of the uh, uh, radio and television and, and the, the motion motion picture arts and sciences, and I'm a voter for the right. Academy Awards. And uh, I decided this year. Uh, we wouldn't go to any movies until wow, the end of the season when the producers, if they want their film recognized for any kind of an award, will send you, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the disc of their show. And last year I, I watched, I think, 60-some-odd <laughs> All, all over the course of about, what, three weeks? <laughs> <laughs> A little long. That was it. Some of them didn't make it all the way, but uh, most of them did. So I, I don't go to the movies all the time. Let's put an answer to your question. But sure, sure. I'm going to be going to the movies for about 
a month every day and night watching these films. <laughs> that's, not, that's the way I'd like that's to do fun. it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get it all out of the way at the same time. <laughs> it's just more efficient that way. It's more efficient. Uh, and, uh, you also have better... Uh, at 84, my uh, memory isn't so good. I sometimes can forget things before I even say them. So this is going to be interesting to see how I'm, I'll be taking notes this year on movies that I see all in a row. Well, Dick, I'll tell you, this is a uh, it's a real honor for us uh, to that, that you would be willing to take a couple hours out of your fine Saturday to talk to us uh, about uh, your history. You've you've made really an indelible mark on uh, us through through your films and your work. And, and we're so gracious that you would. Uh, you would take your time and talk to us about this stuff. Oh, well, thank you. I haven't had an interview of this nature in a long time, and never one is uh, free-running. I appreciate that. So there you have Richard Dysart, the the lovely and talented Richard Dysart. It's probably, but, uh, I don't know if that's the right way to say it. I think he is lovely and talented. He really is. I think he hit it. He's a gentleman's gentleman. That's what I that's what I love about uh, Richard Dysart. And you know what? Uh, you know what you can tell? He uh, he got my jokes. <laughs> He's very gracious and he actually is quite a funny man. He's very funny and yeah. he doesn't take himself too seriously, you can tell. No. And he does kick the dog. <laughs> Favorite line. <laughs> uh, this was a this was a great conversation, Andy. I don't want to I don't want to spill the beans on who you're thinking that you're going to track down next. Because I know the list is long and distinguished. But I, all I have to say is I'm really excited about where you're going to take this little special Andy series. We'll see. We'll <laughs> see. Where, <laughs> we'll see what I can pull off. I'm telling you, a new microphone is in your future. <laughs> if you pull off what you pull off. Uncle Petey's going to come through. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, thanks everybody for listening. We sure appreciate it. And uh, you know, don't forget, head over to the next reel, search for us on iTunes, the next reel, subscribe to the show. It's still free. Even after this last hour, it's still free. And uh, you should do that. Join the conversation online. Thanks, everybody. you have anything else to say, uh, Andrew? No, no. Not a one. Mm-hmm. Not, not one thing. I'm gonna I, don't, go to- I don't have anything to say. Just keep it. You I'm done. I finished. Mm, good. I'm, I'm spent. Mm-hmm. That's all. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. 
If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.